0: It's a silent treatment. The silent treatment is uh it's a very common thing. Everybody knows what it is. Uh I think women are just born knowing it. I don't think you're taught it. I don't think it's like my mom did it and her mom. It's an instinct that's in us all, that we all just know. And what here's what made me uh think of that. I rewatched the movie six Sense. And I'm not trying to do a six sense joke. This is a twenty-year-old movie. I also have to spoil it, but it's, I mean, it's 20 years old. So if, if you don't know by now, I don't know what to tell you, you know, and and don't be like, we are going to watch it tonight. Uh, we we're going to go to Blockbuster on the way home. And uh, but so he's, you know, he's dead the whole time. And I don't know. That's, if you haven't seen it, that's a, a pretty big part of it, but for those that have, think about when you watched it. When we all saw this movie for the first time, none of us knew he was dead. That was the biggest surprise we've ever seen in our life, you know? We just thought his wife wasn't talking to him for like a year. That made more sense to us than him possibly being dead. And I was like, when I watched it, I was like, what do they show him dying? Yeah, that guy shoots him with a gun. That's how the movie start. That's how obvious they're like, hey, he's dead. And we still watched it for two hours. Just like, I know what this guy's going through. You know, this is, this is a movie about marriage and how hard marriage is. Yeah, even if you get shot, it's your fault.
1: Good morning. My name is Jason. I am the facility director here, and I'm filling in for our pastors, so let's just manage expectations right off the bat. (laughs) If you've not seen that comedian, his name's Nate Bergazzi. He's got a very great, fun, clean Netflix special. I recommend you check it out. Uh, Also, the movie The Sixth Sense, which we have just uh, thoroughly spoiled for you, but also a great film. But as the comedian says, The Sixth Sense was a movie with probably one of the greatest surprise twist of all time. In fact, I watched it in theater, and I remember, if some of you, I'm seeing heads nod, yeah, the audience literally gasped out loud. It was this amazing collective experience when the twist hit. And I'll try not to ruin it more than we have, which is significantly. Uh, But what you need to know for this illustration is that if you were there, and you were watching this movie, or if you were to watch it for your first time, you would think The entire movie is about this one thing. I mean, it is a really great story arc with characters and narratives, and it holds up all on its own. But then this surprise twist hits, and it's just absolutely mind-boggling. Everything you thought you knew gets suddenly interpreted through a new lens, a surprise that brings an entirely new dimension to what you thought was Shyamalan's original story it's interesting because both parts are equally important in the story. You can't understand the twist without walking through the original narrative. But you don't get the full picture of the original narrative without the twist. And I believe this is at least one of the ways that our Bible works. Like M. Night Shyamalan's sixth sense. In the earliest parts of scriptures, which we have collected into what is called the Old Testament... We see poems and prophecies and histories and wisdom writings that primarily deal with the promises of God to a chosen nation. Many, if not most of these promises are about land and people. Let me start with one of the earliest, founders of our faith, Abraham, God makes him this promise. I promise that you will be the father of many nations. So now I am changing your name from Abraham from Abram to Abraham, which means father of nations. I will give you a lot of descendants, and they will become great nations. Some of them will even be kings. I will always keep the promise I have made to you and your descendants, because I am your God and their God. I will give you and them the land in which you are now a foreigner. I will give you the whole land of Canaan to your family forever, and I will be your God. In the book called Exodus, the promised uh, land and people is reiterated, to a guy named Moses. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land." I swore with uplifted hand to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession because I'm the Lord. And this sentiment about land and people is carried all through the Old Testament scriptures. In Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the next few books of the Bible. They continue the journey towards this promised land. They're given laws that make this people a holy nation, a separate, set-apart group. Pastor Garrett has been taking us through the book of Joshua, which is all about moving into this promised land. Following Joshua is a book called Judges, and it centralizes its teachings around being a people in the land, separate from the other peoples. And God promises that if they obey, he will go before them and he'll protect them, and they will continue to take this promised land. By the books of Samuel, the promises of God become focused on a mighty kingdom of Israel, ruled by a man named David and his descendants. His son is all-wise and builds this temple for God. The temple gives them a place that forms an identity as a people. They are a people of God in an established land, in a kingdom everlasting. 2 Samuel says this, Your house And your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure forever. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God fulfilling his promises to Israel. Promises to be a land and a people with an identity wrapped around this temple, the nation of Israel. That's a walkthrough of our entire Old Testament. There's just one problem though. With this first reading, this first M. Night Shyamalan-esque reading we've done, the promises do not go that way at all. The initial promise with Abraham, it goes south quick. Instead of a rich promised land, he finds himself in a land of famine, and he has to flee to Egypt. There, he basically pawns off his wife to an Egyptian pharaoh, who thinks she's very attractive, to save his own skin. And in time, his people end up in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. But the promises re up to a man named Moses who encounters God in a burning bush. But leading the people brings great misery for Moses. It's filled with disobedience and infighting. They slaughter each other. From time to time, they abandon their faith. They make false idols. And at the end of it all, Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land. In Joshua, they finally move into the promised land. But it is a bloody mess. Israel does not do it right, and they actually end up not taking all of the land that's even promised. That leads us, of course, to the book of Judges, which kicks up with more fighting, trying to still get those Canaanites out of the promised land. There are 12 stories that get recorded, and they each tell of a mighty hero or heroine. Sometimes these supposed heroes and heroines that God sends are actually the ones that start causing the messes. Some of them start civil wars among the Israelites, One of the judges actually sacrifices his little dancing daughter because he thinks it's going to please God. Then we get to the book of Kings, and we learn about the faithful King David. Also an adulterer and a murderer. And the everlasting kingdom that he was promised actually falls apart. His wise son goes off the rails with money, concubines, in this bloody cycle of kings, all of his descendants plays more like a season of Game of Thrones. Israel divides in civil war. The southern state, now called Judah, is conquered by the Babylonians, and the north is conquered by the Assyrians. They spend 70 or so years in exile, but are eventually allowed back home to rebuild their temple. But even still, they are exiles now in their own home. Because they are still under the occupation of Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. This is the basic story of the Old Testament. It's very complicated. It's a bloody, messy cycle at times. It kind of goes like this. God makes promises. The Israelites do evil in the sight of the Lord. God hands them over to be conquered and oppressed by their enemies. The Israelites cry out for help. And then God raises up a savior or a Messiah, or anointed one to deliver them. Even if it's from out them, the Persian king Cyrus, Isaiah calls Messiah. There's peace for a time until the Israelites once again do evil, and the story starts all over. A story about God fulfilling his promises looks more like a story of people wrestling with their God. But you know what is perhaps the most fascinating thing about it? Is the integrity. It is filled with integrity. Most nations like to doctor their history, make themselves look good. Israel, no. They throw it all in there. The successes, the failures, the good attitudes, the bad attitudes, the life, the death. Even a whole bunch of weird stuff that honestly, if you go back through, probably could not have made sense for them. Stuff that actually might make more sense to us than it would have them, But they recorded it, thank God. It's got a lot of integrity. This is a people not afraid to engage with the complexity of life. The complexity of relationship with God. And that's a pretty good story in and of itself. It reads like a first viewing of M. Night Shyamalan's Sixth Sense. And the story sort of ends with this lingering hope for a day when another Messiah will come and lead them, maybe in another conquest, purge first the bad in themselves and then the bad all around them. At this time in history, it's the Roman Empire. They believe Israel will once again rise to greatness, the throne of David reestablished, the promises of God kept. This is their cycle. They are quite certain they know who God is and how he works because they've seen this all before. They're the people that have walked with God. But then, a twist. In what is now called the New Testament, we learn that a Messiah does come. But he's nothing like what they expected. Instead of a great king born in a palace, they get a helpless child born in a manger. He's named Jesus. Jesus. This child grows not as a mighty priest that brings Israel back to strict adherence to God's law, but as a teacher that teaches things like blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the just, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. He heals people on the Sabbath. He associates himself with other tribes, people from other nations, with sinners, with scum, something they all considered a big no-no. no no He takes their teachings and he says, You have heard it said, but I say. And he refocuses them to matters of the heart rather than matters of ritual or symbolic obedience to God. They expected a Messiah that would come in power. And instead, he comes and does things like wash their feet. They expected a Messiah that would come clean up their own country and then deal with their Roman oppressors. Instead, a sinister plot, a total political sham unfolds between the Jews and the Romans working together, and it ends in this total mockery of a trial. These powerful oppressors, both Jewish and Roman, win the day, and this Jesus, this Messiah, is executed. All their dreams, their hopes are crushed, and the followers scatter. Everything they expected totally goes by the wayside. You know, I used to judge them for this, and uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you too, all the Christians around me did, we'd say, man, those disciples, they're such idiots, they're fools. I mean, they walked and ate and lived with Jesus. After all that time, how on earth could they just abandon it all? Didn't they get what was going on? But actually, as I've continued to study these scriptures in my life, and I look back, their reactions make absolutely the most sense. These were men and women of Scripture. They knew all about God's promises. They knew Abraham and Moses and Joshua. They knew the judges. They knew David and the kings and the home of Israel and the land and the people. They expected Jesus to be a great hero of faith, like the many times before. They thought Jesus was was there to clean house and bring Israel back to greatness. In fact, when Jesus called his first disciples, he told them they were to become fishers of men. If you've been a Christian for a while, you have come across this and probably assumed that by fishers of men, they're being asked to share the good news of Jesus with others. This is certainly what I've believed most of my Christian life. But that's probably not what that meant, at least not at that time. I mean, they just met Jesus. This is in Mark chapter 1. For the first time, they've just met him when he asks, do you want to come follow me? I'll make you fishers of men. They hadn't yet seen his works. They hadn't seen his miracles. Certainly not his death or his resurrection. They knew nothing of this good news. What they were very familiar with were their own scriptures. The symbols and imagery of their own scriptures. Like this from Jeremiah 16. But now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that, I will send many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountainside and hill and from the crevices of the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for the wickedness and their sin. They would have been familiar with this verse from Amos. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come. When you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you, with fish hooks. Fishers of men, correctly understood at this point in the story, is not the good news of Jesus Christ. At this point, Jesus seems to be calling them to be harbingers of justice. Gather Israel. It's time to clean house. Gather the Roman oppressors. It's time. It's time to clean house. They were to be fishers of men who would gather the bad before their human Messiah, anointed by God, that would clean house and restore their nation and continue the only cycle they had ever known. We see what the disciples had in mind about what was going on right up to the very end of their time with Jesus. It says this in Matthew 26, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him. With a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions... Reached for his sword. Yes, the disciples were packing heat. (laughs) Drew it out and struck the ear. Struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. This was their moment, you see. This is their natural cycle. They thought, finally, here's our Messiah. Let the revolution begin. But Jesus responds with yet another surprise twist. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus is killed and with their expectations crushed, they scatter. Kind of makes sense. Then the twist gets even weirder. After three days, reports come out that this broken Messiah may have come back from the dead. This brings us to what has become one of my favorite passages of all time in Scripture. Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus. I'm going to read it. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last days? What things? He asked. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but then urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went and he stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now back to the sixth sense or any M. Night Shyamalan movie for that matter, once Shyamalan reveals his big twist, he goes back through the original story. He replays all the key moments in the movies, and he shows you how you really should have seen this coming the whole time. That's what makes it such an amazing story. The surprise twist is always there the whole time. But also, for all of us that were in theater, it's a surprise shocking twist. This, I believe, was their M. Night Shyamalan moment, where the movie got replayed, but with a new perspective. Walking the road to Emmaus, Jesus tells them that his surprising twist has been there the whole time, and as the Apostle John just simply states, Jesus was there in the beginning, from the beginning, and it was always pulling towards a suffering servant, not a mighty king. It was never actually about sacrifices to please God, but God offering himself as a sacrifice. It wasn't even about a people and a land just for Israel, but Israel was always intended to be for the redemption of the whole world. It was never about their own power, but always intended to be an upside-down kingdom where the last are first, where the least are greatest. This is the surprise twist of Jesus, but it's also a surprise maybe they should have seen coming. Something clearly pivots, though, after this walk, after this new perspective. We don't know exactly how Jesus reframed the scripture on the road to Emmaus. We have some letters that we kind of mine through to figure out what was Jesus telling them. But whatever it was, we know this. It was so profound that this scattered group came back together and ushered in a new movement of peace. And it spread throughout all of the Roman Empire and even into the eastern provinces, provinces like wildfire. Rome didn't have to get put down. Rome didn't even matter anymore. A new kingdom had come, and it could be lived out despite whatever was in the world. And this kingdom has landed with us here today. So what does that look like? Well, I'll be super honest here. (laughs) This is the part of preaching that I really don't like. Because I don't honestly know. I mean, that's the trouble they got into with God, right? They knew everything to expect. Unfortunately, when Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they killed him. And I don't want to make the mistake and co-opt Jesus to look a lot like me and my expectations. Or do I want to try to please you and your expectations? But I will give you a little commentary, but I would like us to leave it there. Jason's commentary. We've walked through the scriptures. Here's a conversation. For me, it's partly, perhaps it's a few things. It's letting Jesus be the surprise twist to us that he was for Israel and the apostles. We all get so certain about what would Jesus do and what would Jesus say about this or that. And honestly, I just don't think we're quite as smart as we think we are. I know I'm not. Many Christians work so hard to get all the do's and don'ts and believe this or believe that. And honestly, it comes across like an ugly, rather obvious cycle. It causes a lot of civil wars. We tend to get everything so figured out, we don't even need Jesus to clarify his position. We don't need his help reading the scriptures. We like to boil the Jesus story into to very tight, maybe even superstitious prayers and simple formulas so that we can get it all down, so we can know who's in and who's out easily, pass it around to each other, whatever it is we're passing around at that point. This supposed simple faith has no room for the complexities of life, even the complexities of the Old Testament. has no room for pain and suffering, which many of us in this room are experiencing today. No need to sit with Jesus daily and allow that to be the way we navigate complexity, not just pretending it's all so simple. In the surprise twist of Jesus, I think we need more humility, more discernment, less certainty, more trust in the Holy Spirit than either cultural hot buttons or religious dogma. Let Jesus and Jesus alone be a daily surprise, a moment-by-moment surprise. Heaven forbid, a person-by-person surprise. Surprise. I think it means to reverse our entire thinking of what is cool and hip and admirable and powerful. To be great post-surprise twist is to be last, not first. It's to be servant of all. It's to put away the sword and trust. It's to be meek, to be poor in spirit, to be humble, patient, steadfast in love. It's to not stand for what you believe, but lay down your life as Jesus did. Get out of the way. Let God alone be judge as he commands. It's about admitting that we're terrible judges, just like the judges that went before us that get caught up in endless cycles. Instead, judge no one. Don't depend on your own wisdom or your so-called take on God's wisdom that looks a lot like your own wisdom probably. And instead, just point everyone to Christ for their hope, their answers, their faith, truth. Let him be a surprise to them. Don't be a sign with all the answers. Be a sign that points to the one, to the good water, that has all the answers. I do have a little story I can share that in my life has become this this stark revelation of why, like, you just never, we just don't know each other that well. I love that worship song Chris said, like, we don't know ourselves much less each other. And this is a story that is just such a stark reminder to me of this, um, And I try to use this story to remind myself, like, I don't know all what's going on. Don't judge. But we used to run these concerts here. And it was great. But it was, we'd have hundreds of kids piling into this building. And mostly at-risk kids from our community. Um, And then some of us would go up there and, you know, just like my brother, Pastor Garrett, he'd come up with cookies. And they'd call him Weird Cookie Guy, but they loved it. And uh, Andy and Kylie Ewing, he was a police officer, and, you know, they came up and, Actually, Kylie's first words were to, to me were, is there any ministry going on here? And then she fell in love with the kids. They fell in love. With, she Prodeo formed out of these concerts, Prodeo that we support today. And then Kylie took, just basically took charge of it, took it from me in a good way, and did something way better with it. But when we were doing these concerts, part of my job, though, was also kind of protecting this building, right? And we tried try to cordon off the areas as best we could. But, you know, at-risk teenage kids, they like to go where they shouldn't go, and one time, I'm going down to those glass doors, and this kid, we've locked off an area, and he wants in, and he is just kicking the glass on this door, just over and over, and I can see, I mean, those are thick pane glass, I can see the glass bowing, and I am livid, because this is like, this is not what we're trying to do here, this is not what it's about, and I'm just about to light him up, and I, it, not an audible voice, but this weird experience of this, like, like, no, don't do it. Like, stop, Jason, don't be yourself. Don't do what you think. You, like, don't. <laughs> and so in this miraculous moment to me, I walk over to this kid and said, and I just said, are you okay? And he turns around, and he is a, a complex mix of rage and tears. And I said, Are you okay? And he said, my uncle just called me, and my parents were both killed in a car accident. He's coming to get me. And so I sat with him, and we just cried. It's a reminder to me, our world is complex, and our lives are filled with complexity, and we don't need a simple faith that tells us what to expect and gives us certainty or clarity, although we crave that. We need a rich and complex faith filled with surprise and discernment. We need the living word of Scripture that speaks new things to us daily. We need the Holy Spirit working among us as a community. We need daily dependence on God. And all of this shrouded in faith, hope, and love. And as a letter to the church in Corinth states, the greatest being love. Let's pray. Lord, help us be a people that live as you lived and love as you loved. Help us turn away from idols of fame and glory and instead admire and glorify the least of these. Help us to not chase comfort, uncertainty, idealism, but instead give us discernment. Help us into enter into celebration with what is to be celebrated but also to grieve what is to be mourned. To embrace all this complexity and not look for easy answers or superstition. Help us not rely on our own wisdom and expectation, but encounter your living word daily as surprising good news. Lord, may we be a surprise to others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.